Hello and welcome to the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Hi, hello. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to remind y'all to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you do your listening to keep up to date with our most recent episodes. You can follow us on social media for updates and other fun posts. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. And then as always, if you have questions or suggestions for the future, you can send us an email at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. With that, let's get into today's interview with Megan Miranda. Our guest today is the New York Times bestselling author of All the Missing Girls, The Perfect Stranger, The Last House Guest, The Girl from Widow Hills, Such a Quiet Place, and The Last to Vanish. She also has written several books for young adults. She grew up in New Jersey, graduated from MIT, and lives in North Carolina with her husband and two children. Here to talk about her new book, The Only Survivors, out April 11th, it's Megan Miranda. Megan, hi, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. I'm so glad you could be here today. And to get us started, could you tell the listeners a little bit about The Only Survivors? Yes. So my new book is about a group of people who were the only survivors of a tragedy that happened when they were younger. So when they were seniors in high school, they were on a volunteer trip and their vans they were in went off the road in the Tennessee mountains, landed in a ravine in the middle of the night. And by the end, there were only nine survivors. And after the suicide of one of the remaining members, they make a pact that they're each going to come together every year around the anniversary in order to see each other through and keep one another safe. Um, And they've been coming together every year at this house in the Outer Banks for almost a decade, even though they weren't really friends beforehand. And they're not really friends now, but they're all bound together by this one really tragic thing that happened in their pasts. And the book starts right around the 10-year reunion. It's about to begin when they learn that another one of the survivors has died, and now they're down to seven. And by the time they arrive at this house, suddenly everything feels like something's just a little off. There's even more tension than usual. And then another member disappears very early on. And suddenly they start to wonder if there's more to the pact and the past that they originally thought. And this house that had once been this refuge suddenly seems like it might be becoming a trap instead. Oh, so it's so good. I mean, what a great, like, just what a great outline overall. But what was your inspiration behind, like, behind this book and this survivor story? Yeah, so usually I feel like there's like lots of different pieces that come together that I'm thinking about. And suddenly it kind of comes together to this, aha, that's my story moment. And this was a little bit different because I can actually pinpoint like the actual starting point, which is really rare for for how I usually write books. Um, So the summer before I started writing this, um, I had been on a family vacation visiting my husband's family in Puerto Rico. And so we were on the beach and we were walking along the shore and a phone washed up in the surf and my husband and teenage daughter found it. And it was kind of in this like cracked case and we figured, oh, it's it's going to be dead. But they brought it back to where we were staying, dried it out and tried to get it to come back to life. And surprisingly, like I came back and my daughter said, uh, I started charging it and it's working. And so we were, tr- they were very excited to try and track down the owner. And of course, as like a thriller writer, I was like, wait a minute, like this could be evidence of something. And now we've turned it on and they can track us. And so my head just started going and like, of course, that's not what happened. And we actually were able to kind of track down its owner um, who had lost it in the beach a few weeks earlier. Um, But that kind of kicked off this idea. And there is um, a plot point very early in the book where a phone washes up um, on the beach. And I kind of took that plot point and and started to think like, okay, well, who's here? I knew it was going to be a group of people. Was it a family? Was it a reunion? And that's how I kind of backed my way into this kind of group of survivors. And, you know, I'm someone who's really drawn to the stories of how the past impacts the present um, and the past returning. And so those are kind of the, the themes I'm really drawn to. And so that kind of merged together with this one plot point that, you know, 
takes it in a completely different direction than than the real life one. But that was the the moment that kicked it all off. I love that. And I also love that your immediate thought as a thriller writer was, oh no, they're coming for yes. us. Because <laughs> I, as a thriller reader, I would have said the same thing. Maybe it's from reading a lot of thrillers too, because I was like, have we thought this through entirely? Like all the different possibilities. Did we realize the real danger of putting the phone in rice? <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Oh no, I would, <sighs> terror. No, and in the, in the book, what a similar thing occurs and she finds a Cassidy finds a phone on the beach and a seemingly random encounter is actually a lot more I don't want to say nefarious but a lot more layered as the story goes on it does it does it takes it in a very different direction so I think I explored some of those you know what if questions in the story instead Yeah, you absolutely did. And so our group of seven remaining survivors, each person has coped with what happened 10 years ago in their own unique way. Each person has memories of that incident that might contradict the other person. And they all seem to have coped with everything completely differently, the way that it's impacted their personalities as adults, their careers, the way that they interact with each other. I'm just curious to know how you flush out each of these people so that they feel so incredibly real and well, like well-rounded. They're so 3D. That's a terrible way to describe it, but I'm curious to know how you make them feel so real that you really can see the threads of how this one event has impacted them and had that sort of ripple effect on their personality 10 years later. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I characters for me are my favorite part. And I am very much like, even though I feel like in thrillers, we're trying to kind of make the twisty plots and and the suspense. For me, the characters are usually what drives everything. And they're the part that I have the most kind of excitement diving into and getting to know. And I feel like the plot often comes from these characters as you're writing them and describing them and, and what their interactions are like and what their relationships are like. And I was fascinated by this idea that one event could happen to the same group of people and they each deal with it in a completely different way. And, you know, some of them kind of live very close to where it occurred and and kind of don't leave it behind. And some, you know, only talk about it this one time of year and that's it. Um, And so I think what really helped me in this case is, you know, I usually write first person and this book is first person from one of the survivors points of view. Her name is Cassidy. Um, But because I wanted to show the past and how it impacted each of them, um, there are snippets from the seven hours that changed their lives in the past, and each one focuses on a different character. And so because of that, I feel like I was able to go more in depth into who each of them were before this tragedy and really get to know aspects of their personality kind of firsthand putting myself in their heads where usually I feel like I stay in one head you know for the entire book and this way was able to give a little bit more of the backstory of each character Um, and then thinking about how to kind of pull those threads through that there's kind of the shadow of this person still there um, but how that kind of kicked off their personality into the future? You know, was there something that they felt was a weakness then that they tried to kind of go the other extreme in the present? Um, Or is there something they're trying to atone for? And so I tried to use all of those aspects within each character to really get to know them, but I'm so glad that they kind of feel really well-rounded to you as well. I mean, they, I feel like I know them all so well in a way that, um, from like living inside each of their heads for a portion of the backstory. Yeah. And it's so great that you bring that up because that was one of the next questions that we had is that the now chapters are told exclusively from Cassidy's point of view and the then chapters from the past are told from those varying perspectives. What effect do you think that produces for the reader when they're able to sort of hop into 
the different mindsets and different times because I thought it gave me a lot more insight into the characters and you could see how what they did in the past impacted the choices that they've made in the present and how they respond to the sort of building stress and tension (laughs) um, during this week that they're reunited in Outer Banks. Yeah, I I do think that that was, you know, a, a huge impact on being able to show these other elements of a story because it is kind of a large ensemble cast. And to kind of understand everyone's motivations, that was really helpful for me to kind of be able to get into their headspace. I'll say when I started, you know, my intention was more thinking of it like a puzzle, like you're getting, you know, I love this idea, even in anything, whether it's, you know, eyewitness accounts or just, you know, a group of people anywhere and everyone sees one sliver of events and it's really only in piecing them all together that you get kind of the full um story and i i actually thought when i first started was it was going to be the same time that you were going to see from different perspectives and i quickly realized that that really wasn't working and and so i decided to do you know, one hour per each character. And so then you're kind of piecing together the puzzle um, and seeing maybe why something happened at a later time. Um, so it it started as a puzzle and then it gave rise to just all this extra character depth, depth and being able to do things in the present without having to over explain what happened to each character. It, it was helpful for me as a narrative device in that way too. It, it also just reads really well. Like it makes a lot of sense to have the past be the opportunity to see from different people, but know that we're focused right now. And it gives a lot of kind of beautiful suspicion when you're looking at, oh, I, I don't know if I trust how this person remembered <laughs> the same event we, we've seen. Um, but also thinking in that, as you said, you know these characters so well at this point, you feel like you've kind of like lived this with them What was that experience like? Did you ever find that after you had been writing for a while or sitting with these characters that you found your own mood or kind of like self-affected? Yeah, I definitely, um, when I am writing my books, I feel like it's really hard not to take that on, especially, you know, Cassidy's point of view, I, I write first person. And I really, the way I get to know my characters is just imagining going through this situation as they would. And so it is kind of hard to to step away from that sometimes. And different characters have very different personalities. And so I I was like, there'd be times where I was focusing on like this one particular character who maybe uses sarcasm as a defense mechanism. And you kind of like see those little aspects seeping in um, to like the way you're thinking about things or the the way like what you want to be watching or reading. Um, so I I actually I have to kind of compartmentalize when I'm writing. Um, like I have teenagers. Like I don't want you know this dark dark stuff that I'm writing about to like spill over into my you know time when they're home from school. So I write in the same place um, pretty much all the time in my office. Like I'm very Type A and have set hours, and then I try to kind of at the end of the day close my laptop. I'm leaving these characters in this world behind for a little bit um, and then going out of my office. But you do, like I'll be on walks and I'll be thinking about, oh, I, I know what this person would do. Oh, okay. I know what this person would do. No, that's that makes so much sense. It's so important to remember because I, I think writers were the first people who were truly working from home or working from not an office space. So y'all had the jump on us, you know, before <laughs> the pandemic. But it's it's still hard to remember to kind of like close the door to your office and go, okay, this is yeah. done. Now we're moving on. But I I can't imagine with with something so tragic, it still must must take a toll to have to like like okay, it wasn't real. I am creating this. I've got to walk away. Exactly. And even I'd say sometimes the thing that that impacts me even more than the writing part is like the research that you're doing for it. And so I do try to be like, okay, this is my research time of the day. And I get that done early. And then I kind of go into the creative writing time. And then that that helps as well. 
since since we're already on it, this is one of my later questions as well. What are some of your have to have things while writing? Do you have music on? Is it complete silence? What's the snack and drink situation? I love those details. <laughs> Yeah, I actually find that it changes for me too, based on where I am in the process. Like there's this time when I'm in a revision and it's a deep revision, like I have to have Pop-Tarts of all things. Like I'm like, it's Pop-Tart time. Like that's what I want for lunch. It's like my treat. Um, But I I don't know what it is about revising that like my mind goes right to like, it's time for Um, Pop-Tarts. I I know I do write in silence for the most part. I can have like background music softly, but if it's actual lyrics while I'm writing, I'm really not able to juggle that well. Um, I I listen to music more when I'm thinking about a story or trying to get into maybe a tone, especially like if you've been away for some for a little while from the story and you want to get back in, sometimes that's helpful for me, but not while I'm actually writing. Um, So it's pretty simple. Like I... I do usually like to be alone. Um, If I have my office, that's great. Um, Laptop, even better. Um, Sometimes if I'm stuck, I'll take like a notebook and go outside just to to get kind of a fresh frame of reference for things. Um, But that's pretty much my only essentials. Um, Coffee. I I have to have coffee to get going. Nothing works without my first cup of coffee. (laughs) I I think... I couldn't have said it better myself. Nothing works. If I don't have coffee, it's not going to happen. Yes. Um, maybe the most important question, what flavor of Pop-Tarts? Okay, so it goes back and forth like s'mores Pop-Tarts mm. really speak mm-hmm. to me. Okay? Yes. Um, and um, the frosted strawberry ones. Oh. Oh. I, that also, my pantry looks very similar. Um, oh, and if I, and if I can find them, the wild berry ones. But that's because I was a child when those came out. Ooh, Ooh that <laughs> yeah. sounds really good. Yeah, they're like purple and blue, so it's it's like visually a nightmare, and the taste <laughs> is just the same as strawberry, but a little different. So there's no difference other than the aesthetic. <laughs> I had um. I think it's like a birthday cake flavor recently that I bought that was really good, but they disappeared very quickly from my pantry. And I'm pretty sure those were my teenagers. So I have to hide, right. hide them during revision time. Yes. Yeah. Keep the secret stash. <laughs> but I, I guess to veer back to the book, although I could talk about snacks for days, uh, you make your settings uh, very claustrophobic in this book, which is kind of amazing when you are looking at a beach, when you're, you know, looking at the water, the vastness of the ocean, but everything is so closed in, which has a a beauty of its own. So from the shallows of the town to the outer banks, to the incident at the river, how do you create that feeling with setting? I love that question because I, I love setting and I feel like it's just settings are so important in all books, but like thrillers and suspense in particular, I feel like you can use settings so much. And I love the idea that any place can be the most beautiful place or the most terrifying. And the only thing that changes is your perspective and what's happening to you in that moment. And so I try to always pick places that I find beautiful. Um, And that's why I set a lot of my books in the woods, in the mountains, or near the water. They're places for me that I find a lot of you know, peace and solace. Um, And then when something goes wrong, I like to think about how all those things that you love about it can suddenly be turned against you. And at the start of this book, um, I think Cassidy says at one point, um, Grace says to her, one of the characters, Grace says, you know, it's impossible to feel trapped here. And she says, any place can be a trap. Any place can feel like a trap. And so this place that was this solace, you could see the ocean, the water forever. Suddenly a storm comes and there's one bridge in and suddenly you're like, "Is this is a trap. I can't go anywhere. Um, I'm surrounded by water and water is a part of her nightmares because when they were in the past um, in the ravine, it was the rising river that they really had to escape from. And so thinking about 
how each character sees the setting is kind of how I amp up that tension. Um, and I feel like when a character is afraid, everything takes on an element of fear. Um, and I wanted it to feel like the, the borders were pulling tighter and tighter and tighter um, in this place that once felt like you could see forever and kind of take a deep breath and just relax. Right, a place that for them had become a home of sorts, yes. even though, like you said, none of them really necessarily knew or liked each other before they yes. still have built this, this found community. Yes, I think it's kind of fun sometimes to deal with characters who are not necessarily friends or friendly, but are finding themselves, you know, forced together for this period of time. Right, and they're all sort of thrown together in this pact and that's sort of what keeps them close, but also kind of keeps them trapped and sort of builds to that sense of claustrophobia and like that they're all sort of trapped in these different you know, situations as this group of survivors with this pact that they've made. And then all in all the different settings at the house, um, the shallows in the outer banks, it really just made like the whole time I'm reading this book, people can't see, but I'm just like, I was just like, you know, my shoulders were up to my ears, just stressed this feeling of claustrophobia, things like kind of creeping in um, and keeping you really contained. I love that. I feel like they're kind of trapped with their own nightmare. Like these people are like a part of their past. They're trapping themselves with their memories during this week too. Yeah, absolutely. They just, there are a lot of different ways in which they're sort of keeping themselves contained in all of these different situations. Is there somebody from the group that you are most partial to um, or that you have like a soft spot for? I It's so hard to talk about this without spoiling. I think I understand why you chose Cassidy um, as the narrator for the present uh, part of the story that see that I don't want to say anything. It's going to spoil it. <laughs> I mean, not for this group, but for the, re for other readers. But so I'm, I'm just interested to know if, um, you're, you have a soft spot for any of these people uh, in particular, or if they're all, um, you know, I don't want to say all the most special, but if, do you know what I, if there's anybody yeah. from the group, cause I have some people from the group that I was like naturally interested in and gravitating towards. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't necessarily Cassidy. Oh, I'm so curious to hear who you were gravitating towards too. So um, I, I knew it was going to be, I wanted to follow Cassidy from the start. She was the first character I came up with. Um, and I like, and this is a theme I'm drawn to, I think in a lot of my books too, is I'm drawn to, um, following kind of the, the person who's a little bit of an outsider of the group or, you know, kind of has that, like, I, I am a member, but I'm not quite like I wasn't friends with any of these people. And I feel like they have a very unique perspective because of that. Um, and Cassidy is very much an observer. So she was a great person to follow um, in the present because, um, you know, she's really been watching these people for a decade um, and, and seeing their interactions, maybe from a little bit of a remove. Um, but I think also because she's a little bit removed, she feels like she's not quite sure who she can trust either. And she's not quite sure how friendly some of these people are outside of this one week, because some of them were bonded together in the past. Some of them were friends. Some of them were boyfriend and girlfriend in the past. So um, she was a, a character that was fun for me to follow um, as somebody who like, I never know what happens when I start writing a book. So like, I felt like she wouldn't know. She's suspicious of everyone. And I could kind of channel that tension. I feel like I did become really attached to most of the other characters because, I mean, even ones that I feel like come across as like kind of crass and maybe a little unlikable because like in my mind, I'm like, but I know what they're kind of what happened in that past to kind of make them this way. And maybe it's not something that um, is apparent right at start. Um, I think another character I gravitated towards at the start, just he was very charismatic and friendly, was Brody. Um but really it's all of them. Once I got to their section, I feel like I, I just, they kind of took on a whole other layer. What about you? Who were you? Who did you find yourself gravitating towards? Yeah, I think that that's true. As, as we see the story continue from each person's perspective, 
there it's like, oh, okay. That makes so much more sense that this is why they reacted the way that they did. I was just really partial to Oliver and anything that he was doing. And also Josh, even though there were times where he comes across as a little bit, I don't know what the right word is, a little bit of a jerk at times. (laughs) But then when you, when you do get to see the chapters Mm -hmm. from his perspective, it was, it was like a light bulb going off because you're like, Oh, this has really informed Mm -hmm. the rest of his life and and what he does from his job to his relationships, to the way that he, you know, handles these stressful situations. So those were two of the characters that I was really intrigued by. I really want, I, I really wanted more of everyone, to be honest, like you could have probably gone on <laughs> for <laughs> a lot more uh, pages, but obviously that would have been a totally different book. Yeah, I, I do. I feel like they each kind of have their own story that could kind of, they could each be like the narrator of their own story in a way, I do think. Yeah, they absolutely could. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. And so taking it back to the characters, we see that the number seven seems really significant to this entire story. It goes seven hours in the past, seven days in the present. We have seven current survivors. So was that intentional? Was the number seven significant to you? So I knew I I love structure, like to think about what's the right way I want to tell a story and why. And once I come up with a structure, I think it really helps me envision the totality of it and kind of like hold the different pieces and how I'm going to tell it in my mind. Um, So I knew I wanted to tell it over the course of a week. So I'd started with that idea, like I'm going to have seven days. And by coincidence, I had seven characters at the start of this book. Like that was the complete coincidence. Um, And then I kind of, you know, I knew I wanted to show the past and suddenly I realized that the structure could be seven days in the present interspersed with the seven hours of the past. And because I have these seven characters, they could each kind of take the center stage at it. So it was partly planned, partly like happy surprise, which I feel like is kind of my process in general when I write, like I have a little bit of a plan for some things and then things arise as you write and they just kind of find a way to to work together. I love the symmetry of that and how it all sort of worked out really nicely to be like seven, seven, and seven. Very much appreciate (laughs) that it all kind of slots in perfectly. Thank you. I also love that that balance kind of came from 
just almost nowhere that it started with, well, I want seven days of the week, but now I've also found everything, everything just fell into place. (laughs) It is. And I feel like that happens a lot. And that's why I feel like I'm jealous of people who can outline, but I feel like sometimes these pieces of magic happen when I'm not, I, I don't outline. And so it's like those little things that come up and you're like, aha, now I see, and the structure kind of becomes my outline in that way, because it was like a, a little bit of a skeleton to follow. Definitely. Well, and it it gives you probably an easier time being a little more fluid or changing with kind of what works, you know, maybe edits are a little easier to deal with because you're like, yeah, this, this did need a, a touch when maybe when you have like that full, I've scripted everything and now I have to turn it into the book. That might be a little more like killing your darlings. <laughs> yeah, I do think so. Yes. Now I wanted to talk about the cover because it's a, a beautiful cover. Emma's got it up ready for us here. Uh, it can be seen as either quite hopeful, like sunrise, sunset, or quite ominous. You've got that like red skies, you know, the whole sailor motif of look out for the storm. Is that intentional? And how did the design come to be? I believe it's intentional. I will admit that I did not, you know, this came to me um, almost looking like this in the first draft. And I was like, nailed it. Yes. Um, So when I, I take research trips when I'm writing the book and I had gone to the Outer Banks while I was writing it um, just with my husband. And it was a little bit, it was in May, like right when the book was starting. And um, I took a lot of pictures when I was there, especially in the evening and like at sunset. And I did, I sent those in to my publisher and my editor, like with, you know, it was this lone house on the beach. And I was like, this is kind of how I imagine it. Um, And I think they, they said they kind of use that as a jumping off point um, to like come up with ideas of, of what it would look like. And I think we knew like the house because, you know, the, the book is almost a locked box and this house for a good section of the book. Um, so we wanted to kind of focus on that. And I love those colors because I mean, to me, it is very ominous, like is a storm approaching, but also it's that beautiful sunset. It's that idea that like every setting has this duality to it. And, you know, you go to it one way, but maybe it becomes something else while you're there. So I cannot take credit for the design, but I love it. Hey, that's okay. You had the idea. And if they come back (laughs) with something perfect, we'll take it. That's, That's the great thing about art is that you can kind of find a variety of different meanings in it. And it really does fit both the story, but also the message. Yes. And I love with thrillers, how something so beautiful, a vacation home on the the beach of the Outer Banks, like at sunset can also be so terrifying when it's in the context of a thriller. (laughs) Yes. And I think this is why I always tell people like my towns are totally made up because I love small towns. I love setting books in small towns. I live in a relatively small town and I don't want to like take someone's beautiful small town and then be like, here's all the dark, creepy things that are going to happen here. Um, And the same with kind of like this beautiful house on the beach. Well, here's all the creepy things that are about to happen here instead. I'm curious to know what the process was like for you, just in terms of how long it took to write this story and get it to this point, um, what that looks like for you from when you first had that idea, when you first, you know, found the phone on the beach to having, you know, this advanced reader copy out uh, to people, just what that timeline is like and what your process is like to get it here. Yeah, I'd say it varies a little bit book by book. Um, I think because like structure and story for me go hand in hand, sometimes I don't get the right structure the first time around or my first, you know, hundred pages in and have to kind of retool it. Um, But generally speaking, um, I'm writing about a book a year and um, I usually, because I have kind of that starting point for this book, I can trace it back to like, here's where the first idea came from. So it was in July. 
when I was on the beach and we found that phone. Um, I didn't actively start writing it right then. I think I was finishing up edits for um, The Last to Vanish. So I it sat with me for a little while and I would be thinking about it. I think I probably really sat down to start mapping it out uh, or like, you know, get to know my characters, dive in, see what happens um, in September or October. Um, I finished the book. I turned in my first draft while I was on tour for Last to Vanish. So that was July. So it was just about a year from like idea to turning in that first draft. Now, I will say I did rework a lot of the book myself before I turned it in um, because I kind of figure things out as I go. I, I do a lot of revision of like the first half as I'm getting into the later halves. Um, and then we did several rounds of revision um, kind of July, August, you know, into the early fall. Um, and then the book is going to come out in April. So that's how that one went. Not always like that, though. But that's such an, like, it's exciting to hear because it is such like an interesting turnaround that, that, that period of time looking at really just like a year, year and a half, depending on, on how things fall when you don't have something uh, inspired the same way that like the phone did in this case, how long do you find that you sit with ideas when they come to you before you start to turn it into a story? That's a great question. Um, I feel like I've been very fortunate that usually I like this idea starts coalescing for me right when I'm finishing up the book before, because there's always this moment of panic, like, do I know what I'm going to be writing next? Or, but I'll say they often are like fragments of ideas that have sat with me for a while. So um, for instance, one of my books is called Such a Quiet Place, and it's set in a small neighborhood. And for years, I've been saying, I'm going to write my neighborhood book. Like I had in my mind, I want to write a neighborhood book, but I didn't feel like I had like the right story for my neighborhood book. And I was watching a lot of um, true crime at the time. And would find myself thinking at the end, like, oh, I wonder what happens next. What happens next when you think everything is wrapped up? Like what happens to all these people who were involved? Um, and what if the story is just beginning? And that idea merged with my neighborhood idea and became such a quiet place, which happens after somebody is released from prison and like a verdict is overturned. Um, so I'd say like the neighborhood part sat in my mind for like over a year. Like I knew I wanted to have message boards as part of it, but the story part came kind of, and once I had that story part, then it went pretty quickly. Um, so there's not really a set, you know, rule of how long things take. Um, sometimes I start writing it and realize like, this isn't a big enough idea to carry like, you know, the entire book and, and it starts to pull on these side uh, threads and it just becomes something different. I am always just so fascinated because every writer has just like a, a slightly different process. And I, and I love that the like not afraid to pick at it because it's not going to fall apart. That's usually when you find the rest of the story almost yes. waiting for you. Yes. Yes. I love that too. Now you write psychological suspense titles for both adult and YA readers. Do you have a favorite audience? Do you prefer one over the other? No, you know, I'm, I'm focusing right now on the adult stories because I, I feel like though that they almost incorporate, I started in young adult and I feel like they almost incorporate the elements that I loved about young adult and kind of pull them like, for me, I was writing about these big stories that happen when characters are teenagers and how in my adult books, I feel like I take that same idea and explore it. Like, how does it impact the rest of their lives? Um, who do they become as adults? So for me, the only way I, I approach them differently is like thinking about filtering it through the perspective of somebody experiencing things for the first time versus like filtering through decades of these lived experience that changes how they view things um, and puts things into perspective. So I enjoy both stories. I feel like the things I write now do kind of incorporate what I loved about YA um, into the books, the same types of stories I'm writing um, for the adults. 
it's also great perspective for why those background moments are so incredibly strong because you have that core foundation of I already know how to write these people when they're <laughs> teenagers. I can, you know, now have truly like all, all the rounding from my characters as opposed to just, like, we're just throwing it back and hoping for the best. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But That's I also amazing. think, um, especially with this book, there are so many formative moments that happen when you're a teen and you really see the influence of that you know, when you're in your twenties or thirties, the music you listened to back then, the relationships you had, like all of those things play such a huge role in who you are as an adult or what your preferences are. And that really comes across in this book, particularly when you've got, you know, the then and now segments. So I'm going to throw it back to your book from a couple of years ago, The Last House Guest. This was picked for Reese Witherspoon's book club. And so we're just curious what that was like to have one of your books picked for such a notable book club and um, how that felt to suddenly have that (laughs) exposure from Reese. (laughs) Yeah. Like it was the most incredible experience and, you know, a relative surprise for me too. Um, You know, I found out uh, maybe two months before the pick and I couldn't tell anyone at the time. And so I was like, I was so excited. I was holding it all inside and I was waiting because I knew it was going to be announced on Instagram. And I was like, I'm going to screenshot the post. I'm going to send it to like my, I have like a large family group text. By the time I screenshot that half my family was like, Megan, did you see this? Did you know? And so, I mean, the reach is just incredible. Um, It was so amazing to see, like, I love talking to book clubs. Like, I think it's fascinating what everyone kind of picks up in a story and what a reader brings to a story. And I, you could just, you know, you saw all these book clubs who were saying, we're going to read it together. Um, And it just, you know, I feel like it also, um, reaches beyond, you know, it's a normal audience of people who maybe are like, well, I don't know if I, you know, love thrillers or suspense who, who give it a try and find something that they might enjoy in as well. So it was the most incredible experience, such a whirlwind. I'm forever grateful. I mean, what a, what a fantastic community. Um, just wonderful. That's, that is so exciting to hear. Uh, I, I love everything about that because it, Yeah, like you said, the most interesting part, maybe for me as well, of these modern day book clubs is getting new titles in front of folks. Like your books absolutely fit your audience. Like people who are in the thriller space are going to turn to it. But those folks that maybe don't know what they like yet, or, well, I've only ever read this style of thing, if they are following along, it's a great exposure for for the reader as well, as well as for the author. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I discover so many books that way too, um, outside the genres that I usually read in. It's fantastic. Also like props to you. I don't know if I could have kept a a secret for two months that I knew was going to be so public. It was hard. It was very hard. And good on your family. I did. Oh yes. I did tell uh, my family, but that was it so that was it but also like good on your extended family being ready yeah. with the screenshots oh yeah they because they all follow Reese Witherspoon and they all follow the book club they had that they saw it immediately like, wait what she didn't yes. tell us yes <laughs> now if we look at the only survivors again if you had to cast your seven survivors in a movie who would play them oh I'm so bad at this question in general, because I know I do, I feel like um, I there's something specific about the characters in my head that they exist as. That just can't be translated kind of or thing. Like, I love the idea that really it's more about embodying like the, this duality within each character and, and stepping into that role. And so I try not to think about it in a, I think it really could be so many different types of people playing these characters. Um, so I'm terrible at it. I love to hear other people's ideas. Like every time I go to a book club, they're like, we think this person. I'm like, yeah, 
that sounds great. They would be great. Um, but they are kind of a specific kind of person in my head. Um, so it's hard to kind of like just shift my mind and, and envision like this is the person that I would envision playing it. So I like to keep keep it open to possibilities. No, that makes so much sense. It's you created them. They exist to you as one, as as their own being. So to try to be like, yeah, you know, Jennifer Lawrence could be whoever, it does it doesn't work for you that way. <laughs> She'd be great in so many of the characters, I think. Yes. <laughs> Well, so to start to wrap us up, just some questions from two nosy podcasters. What are you reading or listening to right now? Okay, so um, I have been reading um, a few. I mean, this is one of the benefits of of being a writer is kind of getting sneak peeks at books that are coming out later. Um, so I've been very fortunate to read a few that are coming out next year. Um, I've just, I've read Ashley Elston's First Lie Wins, which is like a twisty cat and mouse um, type book. And I, I think that will come out in about a year. Um, and then I'm reading um, Vanessa Lilly's Blood Sisters, which comes out in the fall, which is also great. And um, I just picked up um, Mary Kubica's Just the Nicest Couple. Um, I'm a huge fan of hers. So I'm always like, I there's some authors where like I use their books as bribes for myself. Like when I finish writing this section, then I get to dive into to their stories. So I'm very excited to read that one as well. Oh yeah. You, you got to have the carrot to get yes. through, to get yes. through certain parts. <laughs> Are you watching uh, any show like fervently right now? Is there anything that you're binging? Hmm. I'm trying to think. The last show I binged, so right now I haven't been like binge watching something, um, but over the holidays, my teenage daughter and I binged all of Wednesday in like two days, um, which I just, I think it's so fun when you find a show that like appeals to like both of us in, you know, I had the, the, the nostalgia for me of it as well was, you know, really fun. We both just really, really enjoyed like the mystery of it and also kind of, you know, the humor. And um, so that was the last show I, I binged, but um, I'm trying to think what else I've been watching. Time is a precious commodity. It's it's hard to make time for all the great books and all the shows and, and the family and I feel like I go through stages where like, especially after I turn in a book, I'm like, I'm going to watch all the TV right now. And it's like two weeks of like binging everything that I've been like hearing about and wanting to watch. Um, so yes, I go through kind of phases. When I say public library, what comes to mind? Ah, so libraries were like such a huge part of my life at like all different stages. Um, one of my earliest memories, like every week my mom took me to the library when I was growing up. Thursday was her day off. We went to the library and I would come out with like these stacks of books. Um, and for me, I feel like it was like freedom and and discovery and exploration because I could read anything. And, and I read so many different types of books. And I think that's how I fell in love with mystery and suspense and kind of these, these things that tackled like the darker questions or dark, you know, questionable morality. Like I was just drawn to all of that. Um, and libraries have been a huge part of my life since then. You know, I took my own kids to them like every week and we have such a great um, library system in the Charlotte area as well. Um, so for me, it's like community and discovery. Um, it's just been a wonderful, like I, I credit, you know, libraries with um, my inspiration for becoming a writer as well. Oh, I love that. I mean, we're shockingly no, no small fans of libraries here at Overdrive. So <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you never say enough good things about them, but I, I love that. I love finding your inspiration from the library, having those like important core memories with your mom growing up. It's beautiful. We love all of the things that libraries provide. So it's great to hear that you have good memories from them. Yes. So yeah. the only survivors is not even out yet as we're recording this. And I'm already going to ask you if there's anything else that you're working on. 
uh, after the only survivors uh, is out in the world later this spring. I am. I am at work at my next idea, um, which sat with me for like we were talking about earlier, how long do ideas sit with you? It sat with me for almost an entire year, like kind of growing and changing. And so I was really excited to dive into it once I finished this book. Um, But because I don't do a lot of upfront outlining, I don't want to say too much about it because it can change so dramatically um, from what I say to like when it actually comes out. But um, I will say, you know, whereas this book focuses on people brought together who, you know, are only bound by this, you know, tragedy and are not people who are like connected outside of that. This book is more about maybe focused on like long-term relationships and family structure. Ooh, we'll keep an eye out for what comes next. And it's so funny. I mean, the nature of publishing, like this book's not even out in the world yet. And I'm already clamoring to know what (laughs) else is coming down the pipeline. (laughs) Thank you. Gotta love how it works. Um, yeah. Where can the listeners find you online? Where would you like people to be directed to find out more info, your books, updates, things like that? Yeah, um, I am probably most often on Instagram, sometimes probably more than I should be. Um, I'm at Megan L. Miranda there. Um, also Facebook at author Megan Miranda and my website, MeganMiranda.com. Um, you can also sign up for my newsletter there. Perfect. And then before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like listeners to take away from The Only Survivors? Oh, um, you know, I'm just so interested to hear what other people take away from it as well, because I feel like, you know, everyone sees something different in these characters. And and I really just hope that people enjoy, you know, the ride and and the suspense and um, hopefully a few surprises along the way as well. But I really kind of enjoyed um, the process of putting it together and exploring these characters. And um, I hope that people enjoy reading it as well. That's so exciting. I'm sure the folks are going to love it, especially if you love characters, this this is the read for you. But Megan, thank you so much for joining Emma and I today. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. So glad you could be here. And listeners, as always, you can check out these books uh, from your library through Libby or wherever you get your books. And as always, happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com or in Libby. Our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.